The motion picture screen opens the door to sights you've never seen before. Brilliant newspaper reporter. Quiet, everybody! Listen to me! Listen! Run, run, run! You think I like singing in that sewer with a hot light on my hand? Be out of here by tomorrow morning. I'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. Don't ever do that! Don't you ever kiss me like that again! Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Come on, you know you want to do it. On all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we we cover Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing Ooh. for uh, almost two years yeah, now. Like a so month off 40, now. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, forty plus bonus episodes for sure, and again, two more coming every single month. So if you haven't made the jump yet, definitely consider doing that. And speaking Tons of, of which, we have had two new people make the jump this week, and so we're going to give them their shout out. Sweet. And they are Dustin Huber, who I believe was with us once before, so he is back. Welcome Sweet. back. Thank you. Uh, and then we also have Andre Roder. Awesome. So Thank thanks you, to Andre. you guys for getting all those uh, bonus episodes. Hope to keep you. The other plug, because that's Patreon, the other plug is iTunes. If you guys are listening yes. on iTunes, make sure to give us a good old rating and review over there. Uh, helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate that as well. We actually did get one awesome little review that brought a little tear to my eye this oh, week. Sweet. So it was from Switzerland. I, I don't oh, have cool. it in front of me, so I can't unfortunately thank. But if you were the Swiss man <laughs> who left a review, I thank you. Yes, we appreciate you. <laughs> um, that being said, welcome. I'm Josh. I'm Jamie. Welcome back to another episode. We are back talking sleazy movies once more for you guys. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us. And that was back where we were continuing Spooktober into November, as we do every year. Yeah. And we did a uh, 80s buddy comedy horror <laughs> double feature with uh, Australian correspondent and friend of the show, Andrew Law. And he brought with him 1986 Night of the Creeps yes. by Fred Decker. And then the uh, very underseen... Yeah, dead and underrated and underrated (laughs) dead heat from 1988, which had Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo uh, in what I tried to describe as Shane Black's reanimator. Definitely, It was written by Shane Black's less talented brother, Terry Black, (laughs) but it was directed by Mark Goldblatt, a editor on all kinds of banger action and horror films uh, who just really effectively realized this buddy cop movie. Yeah. where the horror and the body horror sequences in it are extremely vivid and insane. But then you have just a ton of comedy laced out throughout it, or yeah. at least they're, they're trying really hard for comedy yeah. a, a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Either still way, funny. It's got a charm to it. Quite a unique beast, and we were glad Andrew brought that one on because that's one of the sort of lesser seen ones that we have tackled, mm. and we ended up having a really good time with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, last week, for uh, bonus listeners on Patreon, we did a Sam Fuller noir double feature to kind of pivot into noir vember, which we're going to be doing a little bit this week and next week as well. But last week, we did uh, Pick Up on South Street, which was his, uh, I believe, 1953 noir about a uh, 
a, a classic pickpocket. Lot of, there's a, there's yeah. a long history of cinematic pickpockets, and Sam Fuller had his own, but he had a little bit of a. Uh, a, a bit of a twist in how it was also a Cold War conspiracy movie <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Uh, and then we also did 1964, The Naked Kiss, which uh, the best left unsaid about that one, probably the better. Yeah, just go just go watch it. Has it has an insane twist that hits about the middle of the film, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah, it um, makes your stomach turn a little bit, too. It's and it's a, a very emotionally perverse yeah. movie that kind of threw us through a little bit of a loop, but we, we really liked it, and it was perfect for the show. Also, it seems like a film that has to be on, like, the David Lynch canon. Oh, uh, yeah. In terms of just weird things happening in the underbelly of the american suburb uh yeah definitely (laughs) gave me some twin peaks vibes is all i'm gonna (laughs) say uh but that being said this is gonna pivot us perfectly we we talked about sam fuller a lot last week and we did that intentionally to pivot us over into this week's episode where we have a special guest here with us and that guest is uh film phd student former film theater Worker, sometimes writer, sometimes shit poster on Twitter. That is Lance St. Laurent. Lance, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming <laughs> No problem on. at all. Lance, uh, as I'm sure you know it goes, we have the guests bring some double features with you. Um, so what two films have you brought with you this week, and why do they pair together? Well, it is my distinct pleasure to bring with me, uh, as you mentioned, Sam Fuller already, uh, 1963's Shock Corridor by Sam Fuller, uh, along with 1951's Ace in the Hole, that's by Billy Wilder, and also under the title The Big Carnival, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the reason uh, I paired these up is uh, Bad Journalism. It stars a <laughs> pair of bad news reporters. Oh, yeah. uh, so that's sort of the theme I was going with, but uh, I'm really excited to get started uh, talking about Shock Corridor with you guys. Awesome. Well, Sweet. that sounds like a great pivot, so we are going to move into it right now. We are going to talk Shock Corridor. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. <laughs> Right, we are talking Shock Corridor, the 1963 American sort of uh, sort of surrealist thriller drama. Yeah, film. definitely, definitely goes some places eventually uh, for sure. Obviously, written and directed by one Samuel Fuller, um, who we talked about a lot on last week's show. But for everyone, anyone like sort of unfamiliar um, with him, because we talked a little bit about his backstory last week on the paid episode. He was a uh, copy boy at age 14, termed crime reporter by age 16, and then drafted into World War II <laughs> by 18. So he uh, had some experiences. <laughs> helped liberate and film a concentration camp by age 19. Oh, wow. And came back 
and we'll just say he had a little bit of hangups from yeah. his experiences in his formative say. years. <laughs> yeah. He had, yeah. He had a lot of views on America, <laughs> on America, on, on, on American power. He had a lot of cynical ideas about both war and reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. We're eventually going to have to do some, uh, <laughs> some, some Sam Fuller war films at some point. Cause I haven't that, seen one yet, but mm-hmm. God, yeah, you they said must that be one, insane. it was like this thing. It's called the steel helmet or something like that. The, the steel it's, helmet it's was one of his first ones. In a way. Yeah. And, and then he's got the big red one, which is supposed to be great as well. Yes, right. and that was the big red one's the one that had Mark Hamill in it, and people kind of rejected oh, the idea of seeing Luke Skywalker like uncover corpses and stuff. <laughs> I want to see that for sure. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Steel helmet, big red one, double feature at some point here. Sounds good. Um, but it leads us perfectly into Shock Corridor, which actually is a story about a really bad journalist, as Lance kind of introduced uh, the film as, and largely it follows him as he basically intentionally gets himself committed into an insane asylum with the uh, idea of solving a murder that was committed inside the institution, not to right a wrong or no. do some, you know, uncover some injustice. <laughs> that or was like, like my favorite part of it is right away. They just kind of expose his character, you know, yeah, like they don't take time to kind of make him maybe turn into this bad journal, uh, journalist. Yeah. He's just right away. He's tricking the psychiatrist or at least prepping for it. Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. already talking about fame and fortune without Movie any deals, regard. Quite yeah, literally. Exactly. Exactly. All the once in this world is a Pulitzer prize. Yeah. The right. Thing. And I guess all that comes with it, but that's really, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. And he doesn't really care about kind of like who he hurts on the way there. He's not actually that interested in, in any of the um, inmates who are who are there. I mean, as, yeah. as, ostensibly, like, it's not supposed to be a prison, but it really does seem it like seems a prison. Like, yeah, it gives you that feeling for sure. <laughs> but even like... It, uh, like the people that are close to him, he doesn't yes. seem to be concerned with. Like even his girlfriend in the first scene, uh, she's already concerned. You know, like he he's prepping this this uh, this little ruse he's doing, and and she's already like, I don't know if this is the best plan, and 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 that kind of thing. And he seems totally unconcerned with her. Like there's just nothing else that he's focusing on except his own success. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to go undercover for a year and I know that you are stripping to pay our bills so that I can do (laughs) that, (laughs) but I'm just going to do that. I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) She is a stripper. Also, if you didn't catch that, uh, Kathy is played by Constance Towers. I believe is also the star of the naked kiss. Oh, we definitely caught it because it was was so funny. The the last movie we watched for this show before watching shot corridor was the naked kiss. So we went straight from the naked kiss into shot corridor <laughs> yeah. and i was just like i had a new appreciation for constance towers because she goes to some places in the she, naked kiss she is at she you know she's kind of underserved in this one you know it's more about uh uh I, johnny yeah johnny barrett uh but she does get some great stuff in this uh of course naked kiss is much more of a um showcase for her yes and the places she can go she yeah. does have an interesting character in here, though, because in that opening scene where he is basically like explaining his mission, he's like, I'm going to go under there. I'm going to go undercover into the insane asylum. I am going to find out who did this and I'm going to solve the case and I'm going to get the Pulitzer Prize for doing yeah. so. Just All assuming. That money, that, you know. um, and and she is saying, like, look, I'm scared for you because you're just going to leave me for a year. And who knows what happens to you in there? Like, you're going to trick some doctors who do like shock therapy yeah. into like hanging mm-hmm. at like, she's just like, who knows what happens to you in there? Maybe you get uh, whatever shanked or something like who yeah. knows. Yeah. Um, and the way that she's talking about it is that she reveals in that dialogue, basically, because Sam Fuller very craftily 
has her talking on the same level as all the doctors in the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, a, she's a college-educated woman, right. very clearly, and she could get a job, you know, kind of being a, a, a copywriter or she could be, you know, she could work in one of the offices for one of these places, but she Definitely. has made the choice and said, look, there are some issues, and I mean, we'll get into larger what Fuller is getting at with this stuff because he has a, 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 a he kind of uses mental illness as a bit of a gateway to American institutions in general. Oh. But oh, yeah. she she is very much um, incentivized to sell her body to get more money so that she can hopefully live a better life and pay both of their bills so that he can <laughs> well, get, he's off. so he, he can a become a writer yeah. and then from there they'll have you know together they will be successful is kind of like the idea but it's just it's very clear that like he doesn't seem concerned about making money he's just like yeah i'll just disappear and go undercover yeah. for a year <laughs> and concerned about what she has to do in order to make the money for both of them it seems yeah you know because I mean, like we do know that this guy's a journalist, so obviously he has a has a job. But when you're doing this, when you're taking a year off to try to solve a murder in a mental <laughs> asylum while disguising yourself as a mental patient, I don't know if you're going to be on the payroll. You know? So, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure how my girlfriend would react to me saying that. I'm just like, I'm just going to quit my job yeah. programming a cinema, and I'm going to go solve a murder for like two years. Yeah, and in order to do that, I have to act like a mental patient. <laughs> So what I want to know is committed. how John yeah. ropes in this uh, this crooked doctor. How does this guy get into the mix? Because he is just coaching Johnny like it's <laughs> not at all a breach of ethics and not yeah. a terrible idea. And there's a great scene too where they talk about. Uh, I think I think Kathy goes up to that doctor and starts saying how you know she thinks that he's turning like he's actually becoming sick. And he's, I think, proud of the fact that he's so good at faking it. <laughs> and I was just like, that's so fucked up. That's insane. It's like, and, and it's such a betrayal of like what you should be doing as a, as a professional psychiatrist too. You know, it's like, oh man, that, that scene was dark, but hilarious too. Just to show what these, what these people are willing to do yeah, and, and how it, they see it. And he basically just completely ignores her and is like, I'm going yeah. through with this regardless of what you think. He starts giving her, he starts like ghosting her completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, until even... until she agrees to play the part of his sister, who then they are going to say that he is sexually attracted to his sister and is basically raping his sister. And that's what they are going to use as the excuse to get him committed. So he's asking mm-hmm. his girlfriend to play the role of incest sister rape. Yeah. And yeah. then sell it, which which she does the first time, oh, yeah. like when she's yeah. doing the interview or whatever. But what's what's really interesting is I think it's it's either the same scene or the scene directly after where the the doctors and the police go to uh, the journalist, and mm. this is where they're like gonna take him and commit him or whatever. And he gives off a very convincing performance, probably too convincing for her, where <laughs> she just start he just starts like yelling, Kathy. And just Kathy. like throwing his whole <laughs> body <Kathy>! around, <laughs> and you're and you're like, this is this guy's supposed to be a journalist. He's not an actor. Like, this is a very uh, convincing performance you're putting on right here. No, it's, and I, it's I also love the voiceover in that scene where he's like very he's very proud of himself for like oh, tricking for thoughts, for following right? the script because <laughs> yeah. he's like this is exactly what the doctor said the script would be like. Now ask me about fetishism, and the guy's like, have yeah. you ever heard of the term fetishism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Like his I love his eyes like light up. He's so excited. And it gets you engaged too, because then you're, you know, you get to kind of. It's got a bit of a heist thing yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, you're right? 
right? like, what's the next step? He's is he going to get trick. away with it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's interesting too. It's also one of the first scenes where he does the, uh, uh, the like one shot take sequence is that sequence where he does it all in that office because he has them go into the office. And then at one point the doctor opens up the door and reveals Kathy and the other guy in, in the background. And then that's the scene where it also, he gets explosive and he starts like, going yelling Kathy and like flipping shit yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he's um, which by the way nuts. his yelling Kathy he because he does it twice every time he does it he goes Kathy Kathy the same way that her song goes Johnny Johnny while she's doing the strip song that oh, she does. I, never, I never made that connection actually. <laughs> that's some shit <laughs> yeah I mean in terms of like overall formal construction of this Sam Fuller's quite insane yeah yeah he his attention to detail is kind of unbelievable yeah. Yeah, the, the cinematography throughout this thing is just absolutely amazingly gorgeous. A lot of great, like, deep focus, long takes. It's shot, of course, it's uh, Stanley Cortez, who uh, very famously he shot The Magnificent Ambersons for Orson Welles and Night of the Hunter Night for of Charles the Hunter, Lawton. my God, what a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, on the subject of those long takes, uh, if, if any of your listeners uh, happen to subscribe to the Criterion channel, which I'm sure several of them do, uh, there's a great video by one of my professors here. I'm a student, uh, as Josh mentioned. Uh, his name is Jeff Smith, but he has a great video on there about the use of long takes in this film, and I highly recommend it to anybody who watched this movie. Yeah, no, I, I watched it on the Criterion channel, so I actually did see that that supplement there. And it was, uh, like, being... Because, like, it's one thing uh, that's really interesting, because watching the film, I didn't realize how many there were, like, how many of these long takes were in the film, because yeah. he does them so in tandem, like, with the story that he's telling, yeah. that I actually didn't notice a lot of them. And then that's a good watching point, I... watching the, the supplement, I was like, wow, he did them in, like, every other scene almost. Yeah, I find yeah. myself noticing that, like, when someone pulls off a cool technical feat yeah. like that, like a nice one-shot, I notice. But I, I agree, I didn't really, it didn't pop into my head over and over again, because you just seamlessly... Uh, has it go and pay? No, and well, so because because yeah. the, the film itself is really, I would say, kind of like like primal. It's not show offy in that way. No, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and I mean, some of the long takes that he does are just um, like very slow zooms. Like yeah. they're not even just huge. Like he just does an entire scene in a single shot, like the one where he gets the shock treatment, for example, right. the titular shock in Shock Corridor. Right. Or even um, like the dreams of Kathy where she's kind of like faded, like a faded small oh ghost God. that's laying on him. Yeah, as- they, they superimpose this image of right. her stripping onto his body. At one point, she tickles his ear with a feather and he actually reacts <laughs> to it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Like technically, I was like, how did they even do that? <laughs> and that's also the start of like where he starts to kind of take a turn too because i think there's a, a moment where he even starts to mention the incestual relationship almost as if he's starting to believe it himself and stuff like like it, it gets really muddled with him where well, it, at a certain point he just it's almost like he doesn't know himself anymore he's he's played the role too hard you know well it's of course when kathy visits him in the on a visiting day and kisses him and he like absolutely freaks right as- she is his sister, like, and even yeah. uh, even Kathy at that point says, ah, I think he's believing the delusion, yeah. to which the doctor is like, ah, oh, he's fine. He'll be good. <laughs> uh, he's got this. I, I think there's even one part, because we mentioned the, the psychiatrist being proud of the, the way he trained the, the journalist, but... 
th- there is another part too where I think Kathy goes up to the uh, the boss of the newspaper company yeah. and tries to convince him that th- like this isn't right. He's definitely taking on some mental illness, something along those lines. And he basically says, if he doesn't do this, he's just going to become depressed. So you, <laughs> so you have to let him go through with this because that would be selfish not to. <laughs> like you're just like these people are just trying to. You know, wind their way around these oh, yeah. and, and, terrible and one, decisions. One funny note too about the bit where you mentioned where she tries to kiss him, and that's when it's kind of revealed that he's repulsed by that, even though it's his girlfriend, because mm. he's starting to believe that Kathy is his sister. One interesting note about that is that um, all of those dreams where she's superimposed on him, he's very sexually attracted to her because it's very yeah. much she is mm-hmm. in her stripping outfit, she's talking very sensually right. and trying to make him jealous, and he's saying, "Kathy, no." Like, you're mine, Kathy. So what's interesting there is if you believe that he is starting to think that that's his sister, what it's kind of suggesting is that he (laughs) actually is having incest thoughts. Right. (laughs) Which gets so weird, too. Because she's not. He's in too deep. (laughs) Exactly. That's really what it is. Ultimately, that's just it. He he goes a little crazy. And, I mean, she says it at the beginning, this idea that, you know, she thinks that the crazy is going to rub off on you. And I think that... You know, this movie, some people, I think, are a little bit, find it a, a little bit tasteless. tasteless it, just in the sense that I, it has some retrograde touch. attitudes towards, you know, things like mental illness. And I mean, that's... I, mean, I guess it's like, it also to kind of, he uses it as more of like a story thing, but a story device. But just the fact that they have this almost, like, you take steps and then they kind of break to normal again. Right. That kind yes. of thing. And it seems to happen to all three. So it's as if, like... <laughs> That's just what mental illness is. So it it doesn't bother me because I know what Sam's trying to do, I think, just with his story. Well, and I would say, honestly, that he's using it again more as a like when you actually because when we break down into the plot and we get into the three guys that he's investigating, who are the three witnesses to the murder inside the institution. What we start to reveal is that because, like, again, he never gets into specifics on like what illness anyone has. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's just he's using it as a catch all for a madhouse, as in America is a madhouse. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And we find out that each one of them is really not. Not that mentally ill as much as they are just traumatized by yeah, like being conditioned by American the history and yeah. certain things that have mm-hmm. happened to them in that. And each one has had a different facet of it hurt them. Yeah. yeah. So really, it's just like, you know, they use words like catatonic schizophrenic or whatever. <laughs> and, it, you know, it might, it might be gibberish when we talk about it now, because it's just it's cool. very clear that Sam Fuller is not trying to make a documentary. It's oh, not like, yeah, yeah, it, exactly. it's not it's not like when um Crap! Who's the uh, the really famous documentarian who actually went into the um, mental hospitals and filmed there? Do you know oh, who I'm talking about, know. Lance? I want to watch uh, that. I, Is it, 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 it was oh, Wiseman, um, right? Uh, was it Frederick Wiseman? Yes. Yes, that's the film. Thank you for reminding me. I couldn't remember the title, but I did watch that film because it was available to watch on Canopy, the library streaming service, and. Um, like that is actually him going in and just filming like the institutional brutality of people who were who were in there and a lot of the people is that who were in kind there. of exposed the whole shock therapy and all that kind yeah of some stuff? of some of oh, the okay. aspects of that yeah. I believe that movie has like a lobotomy in it am I correct oh wow. I think it does yeah holy shit some of the stuff that they did to people in those and like he it was actually like an investigative reporting piece on the treatment of patients yeah. in those facilities yeah um, you, yeah you guys are in Canada so you may not know this but this is a movie about the american healthcare system 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I can comfortably say that I have never had uh, the fear of going bankrupt by going to the emergency room the <laughs> yeah. few times that I've had to do it. I yeah. just, I've never, I've paid exactly zero dollars every time I've like broken a bone. It or, has like, been nice. <laughs> it's all <right>. good. <laughs> Not to brag. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. your Canadian Sorry, privilege in front of me. It's disgusting. <laughs> but maybe, maybe moving into like his investigation, because again, we've talked about how he, he goes in there and then he goes in there and he starts almost, you know, uh, Sam Fuller gets, you know, with some of kind of like his manic camera moves and with some of the sort of uh, claustrophobic nature of some of the framing and the architecture of the inside and just, you know, being at the, uh, you know, being controlled by other people all of the time. Like he starts going crazy himself. But while he's there, he is trying to solve this murder and he has three witnesses to that murder, the murder of uh, an inmate or a patient, <laughs> one, or, one or the other, <laughs> yeah. uh, called, called Sloan. Um, and three people witnessed it and they are the characters Stuart, Trent, and Bowden. Stuart was a southern uh, sharecropper who was taught by his parents and his schools this idea of sort of like Southern bigotry and, and, and hatred. And he quickly became kind of disillusioned because it didn't fit what he had learned in school about America's image. He's just like, none of this is what I'm, you know, I was, I was ever told about. And he, I, I find his story. Um, and I, I didn't catch up with the actor, uh, the name of the actor who played him, but I found his story quite moving especially mm. when uh it's kind of being deployed as a you were a commie at one point right and i like the line that he has where he was like i would have defected to anybody he was like yeah. i just i was like they sent me over to i think they said they sent him to was it japan or korea a korea korea yeah. where they sent him and he basically defected to the ussr from there because he basically hated America so much until he was told or he he held an American prisoner who was extremely patriotic and he started to believe on a person to person level. He started to believe in America again, mm -hmm. in which case and at what point at which point he goes home and he is spit on and called a traitor and thrown into a mental institution yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. because uh, for the crime of <laughs> believing in America. again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, that is is why he is there, and that's kind of like the story that he gets. And so what he really starts to uncover is like not really a history of mental illness in any of these people, but just like this like very American-specific traumas that have basically destroyed their brains and then yeah. also not receiving any kind of care or attention from there, which they are also not receiving in the hospitals. Yeah. Very often. Yeah. 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 They're just, I, as, they're just crazy. They're written off as crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. As you said before, uh, spoiler alert, the madhouse is America. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's very clearly Sam Fuller's allegory going on here. Yeah. Cause 100%. I mean, it gets, it gets even weirder when we get into the, the other two. Cause we also have an African American, uh, white supremacist. Yeah. Oh yes. The black Klansman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it reminded me, uh, and, and, and throughout the movie, there's not really much of a, a joke, but, but it did remind me of that Dave Chappelle skit. Did you, have you ever seen the, oh, yeah. the blind white supremacist? Mm. Yeah. He's a black guy that's blind, but he was raised to be a white supremacist. <laughs> and so Clayton Bigsby, I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just reminded me of that. But I got to say, like, Sam, it, the way that he 
presents this character is just absolutely heartbreaking. Really intense oh, yeah. close-ups of him delivering just these really impassioned, oh, yeah. like white supremacist monologues, basically, yeah, and, and, and the, with conviction. Oh he yeah, the passion is, yeah. is unbelievable from this actor. Like he's just so so good and convincing. Uh, and then just that image, the the image of of a a black man with a with a clan's hood. Beating mm-hmm. up another black man, like yeah. that's just something I definitely about, never seen talking before. Talking about trying to save his white daughter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. See, he, he can shift from this really like impassioned, really unsettling speech, and then on a dime, this bit where he has to get, oh, get him before he gets my daughter. It's almost like, almost like wildly comic sort of delivery, like Cleveland Little in Blazing Saddles or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a little yeah. like Birth of a Nation. Because it's so, it's so over the top that you just, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you haven't seen uh, like a black man do that besides the Dave Chappelle skit. And oh, so yeah. I was just like, I, I did have kind of a chuckle just because I was almost so shocked about the situation. Oh, it, it's, yeah, it's a shocking yeah. movie oh, sometimes. And just the, the fact that he keeps making his hood by stealing pillowcases from the ward. Like that's that's yeah. one of the funniest details because every time he goes up to talk to one of these guys, he, he gets a little bit of a profile breakdown. He's like, that's their name. That's their thing. And when he's told, he's told before he speaks to him that that guy's thing is that he steals pillows. Oh and wait, yeah, I actually have these the little the little intros if you want to hear them. Oh yeah, no, g- give me give me okay. the intros for each one. Okay, Stuart, farm boy from the Bible Belt, hobby playing Civil War games, believes he's General Jeb Stewart. Yeah, the I forgot hero that part. The, Civil War. So so he has regressed. He's gone. So he was so betrayed <laughs> that he went back into thinking that he was in the Civil War. Yeah. As mm-hmm. as a way of because America was fighting like him in yeah. that way, you know. Mm-hmm. So it felt like the civil war for himself, I guess. Craziness. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and what's, and what's what's uh, Trent's? Oh, we got witness number two, Trent, and forgive the outdated racial language here, but Trent, only <laughs> Negro student in a Southern university, hobby collecting pillowcases. Yes, because <laughs> that's how they introduce him, and you're like, oh, that's a weird hobby. Yeah. And then, and then and he then reveals the, he pulls yeah, the pillowcase yeah. <laughs> out, and it's retrofitted into a clan hood. <laughs> yeah, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the even the very first introduction to him when he's holding that sign? That says the basically segregation should be a thing. Oh yes, essentially, and it has the big old N on it as well. Oh yeah, well yeah, and I, oh, I, I yes. it says something along the lines of like democracy and this don't, don't go, mix. don't it's, mix it's or something. Democracy and um, desegregation. desegregation. Yeah, d- don't mix. Yeah, uh, and uh, and then says some other explicit things. <laughs> yeah, because because and it's it's he explains that he was one of sort of like the guinea pigs for desegregation. That he mm-hmm. was basically sent mm-hmm. to an all white school, and that was where he picked up on this stuff. And so he, then, yeah, he, he kind of that. internalized like a uh, like a self hatred almost right. that he has then channeled and into we, and we a clan that. character. Yeah, and we get that scene too where where he breaks down to the point of like he's back, like he's he's who he is or yeah. whatever. And, um, and and you get to his just his explanation of all the all the shit he had to go through to the point where he was basically conditioned to think the way he does now when yeah. he goes back to his his mental illness. Right, and and here's our guy uh, Johnny, and all he gives a shit about is his you know Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, is is just he's just like okay, but what about Sloan? You saw Sloan, right? He's like yeah, and then he goes back to telling this like insane story on how story, he became yeah. a white supremacist. Yeah, which is I mean <laughs> he's just that like okay, would win but what you about Sloan? Pulitzer man, the black white yeah, supremacist in the mental real. institution. Like come mm-hmm, on man, like real. it's just 
he does but he doesn't care he's he's not interested in any of these people as people and it's just he's kind of confronted with them as such especially with the third one uh what was the introduction for the third one lance uh, all right that's uh witness number three dr Bowden, american physicist nobel prize winner worked on the atom bomb the h-bomb the most brilliant scientist alive today went insane working on nuclear fission missiles and rockets to the moon hobby drawing now has the mentality of a child of six damn awesome yeah, so, so these are all the people that he's interviewing because all of these people saw the murder of Sloan, which is eventually revealed was actually by a uh, an attendant working in the facility who was trying to cover up the fact that he was sexually abusing patients. Right. Yes. Um, I think in the in the nympho ward specifically, which we do have a scene in. <laughs> yes, which which is really which is a crazy sequence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just one of the guards. It's specifically the guard that they had shown to be the nice one before. Because yeah. there's one that's kind of a prick, and then there's one that's like, oh, lay off him. Yeah, and Wilkes. The one who's like, lay off him. Yes. Yeah, you're Wilkes. right. <laughs> yeah, well, because that's funny. It's a bit of a red herring because when he's introduced, there is the attendant who's just like, oh, newspaper men are phonies. Yeah. And, you, and he's <laughs> given him like the side eye. He's, he's got like this really shadowy lighting on him. Like he's like, he's like being framed as the villain of the story. Yeah. And oh, then, yeah. yes, it is obviously the kind attendant who is the sexual abuser inside the institution and again he uncovers a plot for uh like institutional abuse yeah yeah <laughs> across the board that he is also inflicted by in his own way and what's interesting too is he's that, still not interested in anything other than the yeah. murder <laughs> the thing is too is like once he actually cracks the case and like he gets these answers because he's he's dived so deep into this this mental asylum and his own character he reveals to Wilkes that he found out about him because he thinks now, like, he, he couldn't remember who was the killer because mm-hmm. he's just gone kind of nuts in this scene. Mm-hmm. And I At just, one point, it's like, he even loses his speech, which is just a very yeah. sort of, like, ironic <laughs> yeah, exactly. device. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just, like, it, it's, uh, it was just interesting to watch him finally figure it out, but because of his terrible characteristics, he pretty much can't solve the case because of that, at least at first. Well, no, because he's, what's interesting is that he's there to solve a murder, but he, he seems to think that the murder just happened in a vacuum, that it was just, it was a murder. Some, there is a killer in here. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. like, that's true, but Sam Fuller's like showing him every detour, every like sort of contributing Mm -hmm. factor to that murder. And he has no interest in it, even though it is even broader and even crazier and grosser. Yeah. Um, for sure. So, and, and I mean the way that Sam Fuller, like obviously stylizes this, so you get into the psychological headspace of uncovering the stuff is nuts. I mean like that scene you brought up where he goes into the nymph ward. It's basically the first (laughs) zombie sequence that's ever existed. (laughs) Yeah, for real. (laughs) Romaro was inspired, man. (laughs) My Bonnie, lies over the ocean so moody so creepy and i love like how it just keeps getting faster and faster as it just gets more aggressive the camera's like panning around the room and then it does this overhead shot where and he has that voiceover he's like maybe if i can get to that door (laughs) all of a sudden he's just circled in like this choreography of uh what he says nymphos (laughs) (laughs) and they all Tear him to shreds. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. they start like just straight up sexually assaulting him, and then you think that that's but like with a, biting. It you, seems. Yeah, you think that that's like a weird detail, 
And then you find out that those are the sexual assault victims. Yeah. Uh, so then yeah. you're like, oh. So of course Sam just has to throw that in your face, you know? <laughs> yeah. So like it, it's very well sort of like detailed. And again, the way the, his camera moves in in that scene. And I mean, so there's some really kind of like surrealist choices. We talked about the super imposed image of uh, Kathy on um, his while he's dreaming. But there's other sort of dream sequences that the um, all of the inmates have when they're telling him their stories, which are like anamorphic footage that has been like squished yeah. to fit like a flat aspect ratio. And what I know, what it, what's just interesting that he throws in the dialogue as a little added effect. I'm not yeah. sure what it really means, but he even adds, uh, I think one of the characters says that he sees it in color, Yes, which would mm-hmm. imply that they see the rest of the world so in, in black, black and, and white, white. Yeah. like mm-hmm. the same we're watching the film. And I just thought that, that was an yeah, interesting like, thought. Because at first, the first time we see it, we're like, oh, this is color. Like we're watching it and we're like, oh, mm-hmm. this is color. Yeah. And then at one, the second guy, it's Trent who is like, I see it in color too. And then we're like, whoa. You're, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> that was I believe this, uh, this color footage, too, I believe it is taken from other Sam Fuller work, like documentary yes. footage he shot. Oh, cool. Uh, that he's just throwing in uh, for effect. But it's very, it is very effective. It's, it's And jarring when you watch this very stark black and white movie that it just suddenly flashes in color for all of two minutes. And then you're back to the total drab, uh, <laughs> yeah. claustrophobic corridor and when you were just in like korea or Japan, i believe one of them is japan because yeah. like mount fuji yeah and, and one of the the footage from japan is taken from his movie that he did shoot in japan the uh, bamboo oh, okay. one the one called something of men of bamboo or something like that something oh, cool. or other like that and yeah it is such a stark contrast to that because uh the rest of the film is it's almost like german expressionisty yeah, uh, in in its own way, and I and like that I, great I, hallway sequence with the like rain and just him being completely alone. Well, yeah, that's that's full expressionist yeah. because like oh, that's yeah. literally what they did was that they were just like they did things that don't make sense. Like it was like un, it was a a movement against realism entirely. Yeah. So it it's, was. It like, also leading into that, he, he has another awesome like long shot, which is where he's talking, I think, to the the bigger guy that he uh, is roommates with, the guy that sings sometimes. I think he killed his wife as well. Um, yeah, the guy that who thinks he's like the famous opera singer. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that guy. And it does this cool thing where it pans over and shows all of the all of the patients goes back to him and then goes back to the hallway and everybody's gone. Yeah. And I just thought that that was a it, it was just very effective. Gave that kind of dream that dreamscape and, and well, because because when that sequence is happening, when he's like fully lost it, because he it's after he talks to Bowden. Bowden confirms. The, who the killer was, which, which it, it was Wilkes. Which I love that he attended. can't speak at first, and in his head he's mm-hmm. just like, damn it, why can't I speak? Come on! Who killed Sloan in the kitchen? Who <laughs> killed Sloan in the kitchen? Come yeah. on! Yeah, and <laughs> he, great. He's, he's so psyched that he got the answer, and then Bowden shows him, Bowden that whole time was drawing a self-portrait of him mm, uh, in right. order to, that was how he, he was uh, gaining his trust and talking to him. And he shows him the self-portrait, and he's and we never see it, but it's very obvious what it is because it's a, just a very unhinged man. Yeah. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and he sees that self-portrait, and he's like, "That's not me. That looks nothing like me. You must be crazy." Yeah. And, he's and just to like, the point, and he, too, just, where, he just says, "I draw what I see." Yeah. And <laughs> which does, is such a great doesn't line. he even like start kind of spazzing out? Oh like, yeah. He goes like, nuts. Okay, he's like, "Okay, that's, that's not me. me. That's not me." Yeah. Yeah. Just well, nuts. that's what starts his freak out because I think that's when he gets into that whole surrealist nightmare aspect where like um he starts seeing this this waterfall yeah. and then the water 
is actually the water is falling into the mental hospital, like 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 the set. And from what I read about this, Sam Fuller shot this scene last because he actually did destroy the entire set. Okay, oh, yeah. And, and, and he wanted to go back and tell the producers that, sorry, I can't shoot another ending because I destroyed the set. <laughs> Dude, he's a uh, genius. That's speaking awesome. Speaking of that set, speaking of that set, I'm, I'm pulling a little from supplemental stuff here. This is from the Criterion booklet, but I can't not share this because it's an amazing detail. So he describes building this set with the... Uh, production designer and he sells he built an ingenious corridor of walls and mirrors at the end uh, the far end of the set he painted a hallway that never ended and here's the best part uh we hired dwarves dressed them as mental patients and had them drift around in the back space the <laughs> corridor created the perfect illusion of infinity in a finite space dude that's unreal. Yeah, like for real. Some of the stuff that he did in this was was crazy. Some of the visual techniques he used as a madman in the best are way. like are Absolutely. are so manic and crazy and like perfectly matched the sort of like psychological breakdown of of the character and like the collapse. I mean, literally, this movie climaxes with the collapse of the set bit from the <laughs> yeah. water. And there's and there's a part where he's sitting next to the opera singer guy, and he's like, it's a close up of him screaming. And then he's screaming with water falling on him. And then he's screaming and the water's not there anymore. And then he's back in the populated space of the corridor now. And one really interesting detail that I ended up uh, just totally reading just before we started recording here. He wrote this movie in the 1940s. Oh, right? really? And he wrote it for Fritz motherfucking Lang. Dude. <laughs> oh, <Holy> shit. <laughs> little connection there uh, yeah, for next cause, week because we are going to be doing a fritz lang double feature next week so i thought uh just total we did not mean to do this at all it just it happened uh to, i just it was one detail i read near the bottom of the wikipedia out of nowhere that's crazy and it was just yeah so he, that always seems to happen with our show i find we just almost like coincidentally run into these things but the film style makes awesome. perfect sense because like i was sitting here watching it and i was like this actually does remind me of what fritz lang would do with a movie like this like oh, sam yeah. fuller very that's clearly absolute. sam that's fuller so cool. It's very clearly still a Sam Fuller movie, but yeah. it's also very clearly him being like, this was a project that Fritz Lang like hired me to write at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's unreal. Wow, that's very cool. So the visual style, very much faithful um, to that. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then, you know, kind of after that climax, it, it really just kind of ends with him being a uh, a mute, catatonic, schizophrenic. And what a shame yeah. that, he will win the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, is what the the doctor basically oh, yeah. says. That cruel there. irony, man. <laughs> I, I love this sort of like hard boiled dialogue. So I do have the line written down. It's so good. He goes, "An insane mute will win the Pulitzer Prize." Yeah, just, just oh. can't be able to hear it. Uh. <laughs> and then just to like like to watch Kathy after all of this stuff, and just this is it. She her boyfriend is on a couch. He won't talk. He listens to the doctor when his hands raised, so he's just kind of brain dead. Yeah, and it's just like it's not the the film itself doesn't focus a lot on her, but every moment that she's in, you do feel for her. And then when the and then when it's shown with the ending, you're just like, like it, it's just devastating. She, she for was her. the voice of reason from like frame one. Yeah, and, and none of no that's one the thing too. To it's not like there was a turn with her from frame one. She's <laughs> like, don't do this. This is probably a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she was right. <laughs> No, and, and everybody talks down to her because she's yeah. a stripper. 
every single character. Yeah, yeah which is funny because that's a, that's actually also what happens to her in Naked Kiss, where she plays the prostitute, and everyone kind of has this image of her. Right. Uh, and that whole movie is based around the fact that like people don't take her seriously or don't think of her as anything more than you know you know, uh, as a sex worker. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and this plays with something similarly, even though in the beginning she reveals that she's just as educated in all the authors that they're talking about. Like she's name dropping, like, like, like Freud and Shakespeare and like, like obviously authors that she has read in yeah. that opening <laughs> scene. Yeah. Um, and they're all just like, no, nah, we're going to get the movie deal. It's cool. We're going to get there. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and that ends up being what kind of takes him down is that like everyone, I mean, if if we're saying that like Sam Fuller kind of used this as idea of the U.S. as kind of like a he depicts it as kind of like a lurid madhouse, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. things like, uh, you know, things like hatred and and patriotism and I mean the black white supremacist. Uh, then there's the guy who went mad working on weapons of of war of and war, cold yeah. war hysteria, yeah. the biggest of the weapons, yeah. And then um w- with with the couple with Kathy, it's just it's the actual. It's obviously it's the healthcare system is one, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. then you also have into just like the idea of becoming successful and making money, the American dream. This idea of like she she is a college education person who has to strip to make money. And he is so ambitious as a writer that he can't just get a solid copywriting gig. At one point she tells <laughs> yeah. him, good copy is just writing about people. It's not like this, yeah. you don't need to do this big show-off-y thing. Yeah. And he does win the Pulitzer, but like, again, sort of like the cost of that thing yeah, is yeah. literally it worth his, it, his sanity. So it's just <laughs> like... Uh, I also like with that ending, it seems to, after he sort of uncovers the plot, it jumps forward in time. And I think the implication is he left the ward and he went home and then just sort of over the course of being home, just completely went catatonic. You don't see that process, but that's such a strange thought as opposed to literally being in the ward and losing his mind. It was only after he left that he finally broke and became this you know, just sticking his arm out like the guy in the ward. Yeah, that's true. Because I did find it almost a little odd that they just kind of like, they, they jump from him solving the case and then right away it's in the doctor's office and it's exposed to you that he's gone completely mental. But you have to, you're right, you have to assume that he went home first because he's out of the hospital and things like that. So yeah, I never really thought about that, but that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just, I got to say, I was really impressed overall just with, like, this has, like, obviously really pulpy, like, kind of trashy writing to it. Oh, yeah. But, like, it's really heightened and still well done. And Fuller, like, beautifully matches it with, like, these optical camera tricks that he does and, like, these, like, weird lensing techniques and speed techniques sometimes. Like, there's a full-out action scene in this where he gets into, like, a full-out brawl with the attendant who he's trying to get to confess to the murder. Is that, and, is, and, and it's exactly like the brawl from pick up on Seth okay, street. This is the, okay. I, w- I was making sure I didn't get this confused with another film just in case. Right, but that's the one with the, he has like that long table slide with the one guy, right? Yeah. Where he just goes through, like, it's the like kitchen. a 12 foot it's a full table. Kitchen fight. Yeah. It's huge. And it's a big wide shot. It's long. Like, yeah, it is it, very it, similar. Well, yeah, to that. Cause yeah. we talked to, we went like long on the shot in pick up on South street, which is just, cause I mean, again, especially here in shot corridor is really effective because his, shots a lot of the time are like really um well orchestrated and sometimes again they're getting you into the mania of what you're seeing yeah and then during the most ferociously physical altercation in the film he pulls back and he just does one wide hold yeah. on the fight 
which is exactly what he did in Pick Up on South Street. And it just, it really, I, I don't know, for some reason, it really makes that physicality, like, stand out. Oh, Because they're, like, there's, throwing shit at each other. They're throwing one, each other on top of tables. There's one point where he takes one of the, the attendants and he tosses him over his back. And the guy <laughs> does, like, a legit flip and he's committed. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very awesome physical performance in that scene, for sure. Yeah, and just And his, it looked like the actual actors, yeah, too. they looked like they were It looked like nice. they were going yeah, yeah. for it. So it's, it, was, it was impressive. Again, there's some just really impressive techniques in here and one other before we enter maybe the reductive rating round one of the other techniques i really liked is the one with the opera singer guy or the guy who thinks he's an opera singer yeah Paul he, yes so he, he wakes him up in the middle of the night doing this really obnoxious la, 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 la. <laughs> and and um at at one point um he starts like pushing the guy's head down into the bed and forcing him to listen to him and the camera pushes in closer on the guy who's singing and we can start to hear the music. We start to hear the music he's hearing yeah. because we're kind of getting in touch with him. And mm-hmm. then it pans down and it goes down to Johnny <laughs> and the music goes away because <laughs> he can't hear his <laughs> concern. Yeah. And then a camera goes back up and it does it again. So again, yeah. just getting you into the psychological headspace of his experience, because again, mm. What's weirdly enough is Johnny has that exact same experience with the waterfall climax where he's the only Mm -hmm. one feeling this huge collapsing flooding experience, this claustrophobia of just like he's completely lost it and he is stuck and he is drowning. He's the only one who actually experiences that. And again, he uses similar camera techniques where he shoots a waterfall, he shoots an empty corridor, and then he shoots a combination of a flooding corridor at the same time. And he cuts between all three of them, like at rapid paces to the point where like your brain just starts to connect all of them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just really impressive, like filmmaking technique, like across the board. So yeah, he's he's without a doubt one of my favorite directors now. (laughs) He's unbelievable. Awesome. And I also really liked the line where the one guy starts freaking out. Uh, he's like, he ate my vitamins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so many good lines in this. There's uh, it's just a weird cutaway to a guy in hydrotherapy goes, I am impotent and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. That's a great. Oh, yeah. that's funny. Yeah, that's shortly followed up, I think, by the race riot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> What a movie! I think guys. they have a man come up and say he's five months pregnant too. Like there's there's a just a ton of crazy craziness. Yeah. So like the, it, honestly, just an insane movie. So maybe pivoting towards the reductive rating round, which for sure. you, Lance, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance. We reduce the movie between an, uh, a number between one and five, but it's also kind of turned into closing statements. So if there's any scene or any line or any sort of thing we haven't hit that you wanted to discuss, we can. Um, but and I'm actually on the line about this one, so I kind of I think I'm gonna let Lance go first because I'm, sure. I'm I'm willing to be convinced here. So, <laughs> Lance, what's the rating for you? I mean, this one is kind of easy for me. I I brought this to you guys. <laughs> it is one of my very favorites. Uh, this is a five star film for me. It's such nice. a high watermark stylistically for uh, Samuel Fuller, who admittedly I am not like a huge expert on. Uh, but this is still my favorite of his that I've seen. It is absolutely, like, stylistically gorgeous for the budget that it's on. It uh, does sort of go there to those places that are uh, difficult and touchy. 
uh, but I wouldn't describe it totally as tasteless. I would maybe describe it as maybe a little taste deficient. Uh, maybe, <laughs> well, uh, but a, a, a more tasteful version of this, I honestly think, doesn't work. Like, I yeah, feel like part yeah, of I the think, reason it works is because it's like shocking, or I guess some people might have thought it controversial at the time. Yeah. But watching yeah. it now, it doesn't actually seem like that crazy. It's just no. I think I think people. I think are, the most people would say is just the way that they present dated depictions illness, of, like, of of mental illness. But once again, people, he's doing it for more of like the story rather than a documentary like what well, we were and saying what we gotta say people just they did have more retrograde attitudes about what mental illness was like, yeah you know we, we, oh, we don't we don't know as much about depression as we did uh right probably in 1963 I, so. yeah <laughs> and the last note that i'll make is i think there is this sort of discussion to be had about the way this movie depicts mental illness but i honestly don't think it's in any way sort of aiming for a realistic depiction it's sort yeah. of as you've talked about, it's a means to an end. It's a way of dealing with it in terms of genre. And if it almost sort of reminiscent to me of there was a recent conversation a few years ago when M. Night Shyamalan came out with Split about oh, the way right. that, that that movie depicted multiple personality yeah. <laughs> syndrome uh, and that it was not realistic. And, you know, sort of the counter argument to that being it's not supposed to be realistic. This is a genre exercise. It maybe That's pushes true. the bounds of good taste, but it has no sort of claims of verisimilitude in terms of that. And so it works for me. I think it's a great structure to the way he meets these three patients and they have what they call these flashes of sanity and they each give him one little bit of information. It's a really well plotted uh, sort of exploitation film or B movie we might call. I, I just love it to death. Yeah, apparently yeah. he, by the way, was upset, actually, that the studio marketed it as an exploitation film. Because oh, really? for him, he actually saw it as his version of, like, a prestige film. <laughs> 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 oh, Sam. Which I think maybe really does perfectly describe Sam Fuller. Oh, 100%. That's incredible. <laughs> he was like, this is my Oscar movie. He's like, how, yeah, how are you not seeing this? Oh, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, that I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I'm a huge fan of Sam, Sam Fuller now. This is, he's unbelievable. The way that he like finds a way to, 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 to push buttons, but still make just very, um, uh, empathetic and, and, uh, uh, understanding films like w with what he presents, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's like, for instance, I mean, we have a character here who's a black, white supremacist. That's hard to pull off, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's he's unbelievable, uh, and he writes all these movies mm -hmm. too, right? So he yep. writes and directs, yep. yeah. So, just what a what a talent. Um, the the lead, I especially really enjoyed. He had to he had to do a few crazy things, like like just riding that balance between: Am I insane? Am I putting on a character? <laughs> I think he did that really well. I'm putting on the character of an insane person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so it's such a bizarre performance that I really enjoyed it. Um, and then when that it gets to like this, uh, Peter Breck, by the way, Peter Breck is the name of the lead. Okay. Do you know no. anything else that he's been in? Just out of not a thing. But I just just wanted to note his name because yeah. I mean, he, he was in the 1974 film about the dog Benji. Okay. Huh. <laughs> well, there you go. Looks like a family-friendly Disney film about maybe like a talking dog. Nice. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a four out of five, uh, for now, but, uh, it, it could get there for sure. Um, I, I really enjoyed this and I, I'm amazed at what Sam was able mm. to, uh, get away with back in the day. Cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you know what? I think, I think I've been convinced. I think I'm going to move up on, on up to the five as well. Nice. Yeah. I, I did have the four watching it, but 
I also already regret on last week's episode giving the naked kiss a four. I almost want to uh, go back and upgrade that to a five. I do yeah. think if there's one thing that this one is maybe missing, it is because um, you did describe it as empathetic and it is. But it is sort of missing some of that, like that just straight up raw emotional assault of yeah. Naked Kiss, which to me was so powerful that that second half of the film, I was just like heartbroken yeah. with um, some of the developments he makes in that film. And this one, a lot of it this one so you focused. don't care as much about Johnny. And yeah. Like I, I find that Johnny's a bit of an a bit of an asshole and yeah. kind of like. Yeah, you definitely get into his experience and it's still powerful, but yeah. it was definitely less of like I had less of an emotional reaction to the things that he was doing and more of like a um, so actually I'll say the same thing actually a little bit about Ace in the Hole. Like it's it, it feels more like a like a director's statement film than it does necessarily like a character emotion film. Yeah, I agree. but as far as director statement films goes, you will be hard pressed to find one as insane and as well directed probably as this one is. Yeah. Um, and, and as far and as articulate too, cause like he's dealing with some complicated themes here, but I felt like for the most part, I understood what he was trying to say. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it. I mean, the, the allegory seems pretty blunt and maybe not that uh, uh, under the surface. We'll for say sure, that it's that sure. it, it's a little obvious. Yeah. But like again, the way that he ties it into sort of like the structure and the plotting and how yeah. he gets his way into it. Like, there's nothing here that's not driving his point even further home, which is just an investigation of. Like, I, I think Jeff Smith, that's your professor, right, Lance? Yes. Yeah, he, he described it as an investigation of America's original sins mm, um, yeah. and then how that has itself reflected into its own institutions and not just its health care, but into, you know, some of its uh, uh, like – it, it got into uh, the guy who was inventing the atomic bomb. Like yeah. how it's like, how does someone stay sane doing something like that? Right? right. How does someone stay sane being the guinea pig for desegregation? And you're the first black man ever just thrown into an entirely white community that has been taught to hate you. Yeah. And then you have the guy who has been taught to hate on yeah. the opposing side. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, again, he, the way that he just, uh, has all of those ideas just naturally informed into the story and woven it's really, really well done. Um, and, you know, uh, having the framework of a psychic collapse just makes him able to get a little crazy and go a little bit more yeah. surreal with it. Again, some of the camera techniques and the and, and the tricks here are, are, are pretty insane. Um, so even if his use of the subject matter is primitive, I guess would be the word that I would describe it, or some people might say irresponsible, I, 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 I can't. <laughs> I just can't understand getting too upset about it because yeah. it's very clearly a gateway to achieve uh, an allegory about American traumas and hysterias and, again, depicting this very lurid madhouse of American history. So even if yeah, people thought it was simplistic on what it's saying about American history, again, it's just it's really just trying to, you know, achieve something very broad and, and like and like that. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think for me, I'm going to get there. I'm going to go with the five. Nice. But love it. We are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking Billy Wilder, Ace in the Hole. Nothing you've ever seen before has the tremendous human interest of Ace in the Hole. For here is a startling story of human emotions and human desires, played against the most exciting fight to save a man's life ever depicted on the screen. Now, when Smollett comes, you can give him your orders. Tell him to go in through the cliff dwelling, shore it up, and get him out fast. Not through the cliff dwelling. You can't get them out that way anymore.
All right, we are back, and we are talking Ace in the Hole, the 1951 American film noir film. Um, This one uh, uh, actually stated more right on the genre here, film noir, even though Shaw Corridor did have a bit of, like, noirish elements to it going on. But it stars Kirk Douglas as a man named Chuck Tatum, who is a frustrated former sort of a big city journalist who's worked for all the majors, um, who has been kind of and fired, fired from by everywhere. All the majors. Yeah, and fired by all the majors <laughs> for being a bit of a, uh, we'll say they, he's a bit of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Bit of a hothead. Uh, he's a bit of a drinker. Yeah. <laughs> Is he, it, but not a lot, just frequently. Yes, that's a great <laughs> line. I mean, as is, as, this is written and directed, obviously, by Billy Wilder um, um, with a couple of others as well. But Billy Wilder, obviously, very well known for uh, these very, very witty screenplays. Oh, cool. um, so there's some really good one-liners here. That was one specifically that I had written down to. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But he finds himself working at an Albuquerque, New Mexico newspaper um, just because he needs the gig. He tells the guy that, you know, he will work for, uh, what does he say? He says, I'll work for $50. Uh, I'm a $100 reporter. Uh, I'm yeah. $1, uh, a $1,000. Uh, no, you want to make $1,000 a week? I'm a like $100 a week newspaper man, but you can get me for 50 But then he gets talked down to 40 But then the good <laughs> the good-hearted man says, everybody works here for 60 So Yeah, that, that's what I thought was one of the best touches too because he's like straight up just trying to sell himself as hard as he can. And the guy just says, um, the guy who has the, what is it? What does his thing say? Tell the truth yep, is yep. what it says yes. on his thing. Like, he has it twice in his office. He, he, he just seems <laughs> like that rare, really good boss. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, no, my reporters don't get paid less than 60. Sorry, man. Like, even though the guy straight up talked himself down to 45 yeah, to or 40. 40. Yeah. <laughs> this, this publisher here is like the patron saint of journalism. It's all about tell the truth, yeah. pay your reporters well, check everything twice, wear a belt, and suspenders, which sort of becomes the metaphor. Yeah, like never, okay. never make shit up. Like just tell yeah. the truth. Tell the most boring shit. Like I don't even care if we we're not making money. We're not getting prizes. Like go mm. cover uh, what a, a rattlesnake hunt. <laughs> I think <laughs> it was something like that. Yeah. Which I love too. The introduction to Kirk's uh, character with him being just just uh, he enters in a be- a towed car to get mm-hmm. into the building. <laughs> yeah. And it's just such an introduction because they never go back to that. So it's it's almost just like showing off his character. Like, he'll, he'll get to where he needs to go, but he'll probably be destructive while he does so. <laughs> you know, oh, something yeah. like that. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, and Kirk Douglas, he just swaggers right through the frame. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> he, he walks into a room and he instantly, like, commands every charmer. single person in it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's not even just charm, though. It's, like, force, too. That's like, it's true. Still, like, yeah, it's very yeah. aggressive. You will find me charming. <laughs> <Yeah>. You understand? <laughs> of all of the Kirk Douglas performances, this is the one that most exudes Michael Douglas energy. Yes. Very, I would totally agree with that. Yes. Very slimy, but also, like, charming kind of just like like yeah like a very suave devil (laughs) yes definitely uh uh, i like that bit where he lights the match with the typewriter in front of the secretary (laughs) (laughs) oh my god such a gesture (laughs) (laughs) yes so but he's been fired from 11 papers 
Um, and, uh, and he says it like a brag, which is like the best part of his character. Like, you know, I've been fired from 11 papers because I'm just that good. I think one of them, it said that he was messing around with the publisher's wife. And in response, the publisher was like, you know, we'll pay you $60 a week. And, uh, uh, Mrs. Boot is a grandmother three times over. So if you want to start anything with her, she'd be very flattered. (laughs) got a good good sense of humor about it um and and he he straight up basically admits to everyone that he's not really into journalism for journalistic integrity of any kind no. telling stories he's in it for prestige he's yes, in it for very fame. similar to our johnny from yes the just just up front he's saying look i loved being a journalist because it got me access to like new york sports venues yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's like i just want free baseball games baby. Yeah. Oh, and all the New York food that he misses in Albuquerque. No garlic pickles. Uh, no. Yeah. No. I also love when he's just like, and, and where are the 80-foot skyscrapers that you can just jump off to off of if you want to? <laughs> it's like, I don't have options here, guys. Jeez. No, 100%. Um, he's in it for the girls. He's in it for the drinking. Um, even though he's told he's not allowed to drink in the office anymore. Yeah. He's just like, okay, he does follow that rule for a while. <laughs> yeah. For a while. But not <laughs> while. not soon after though, he uh he, he gets a little we'll say anxious because or he gets a little uh impatient mm-hmm. because he's been working at this newspaper now for a year. We get a bit of a time jump. And nothing exciting has happened. He hasn't had a byline that he's been very proud of, of a crazy story that's going to launch him into superstardom and get him back, uh, hopefully working at, you know, another big New York paper. Um, So he starts talking about the idea of maybe the secretary can get herself murdered in a trunk. And uh, he's like, uh, he he says, I could do wonders with your dismembered body. (laughs) Is a line that he has. And it's like it's bad news sells best because good news is no news. Yep. He's got that same mentality. He suggests that one of the guys in the office starts a fire (laughs) (laughs) so that he can have something to write about. He's just, he's tired of all those boring New Mexico stories, you know? Yeah. Well, and they established that he picked up this mentality because he didn't go to journalism school. No, no, no. He started selling papers on the street, which is where he learned that the news that sells best is bad news. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a very important detail because that is what he he is more of a marketer and a salesman than he is like an actual journalist of any kind and that very much leads him Mm -hmm. to make some of the decisions that he makes in this film because a lot of it for him is like it's it's the optics right it's like what it looks like so that he can weave his way into something specifically happening so that his story is a specific way right he doesn't want just the natural things to happen he wants to to uh to make it happen artificially Right, so he he takes a young photographer out to cover a rattlesnake hunt. Very boring. He's very upset about this. Yes. But on the way there, he sees uh, an an ambulance and some police drive their way over to a local cave, um, and or I guess a mountain, which is called the Mountain of the Seven Vultures. (laughs) Uh, Very epic. It it is a sort of. uh, It's implied that it's some sort of ancient burial ground for Native Americans. Um, and that they have a lot of communities up in the mountains. Um, but a a man found himself trapped in the mountain inside of a cave, and Chuck decides that he is going to go in because he is the brave hero, 
and no one else is willing to go in. So he grabs the blankets, he grabs the food, and he's like, I'm going to go help this man out. But I also love... Mostly out of curiosity, it seems like. Yeah, and I love how... He smells a story. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, because as he's going in, as he's he's, uh, talking to his assistant, all they're discussing is how... This is the type of story that sells. Uh, a year ago, some guy ha- went through a tragedy of some kind, and and I think they talk about a similar accident, someone being trapped or something like that, yes. and how it was this Which big was story. a real case. Yes, by the way, the, the cases that he mentions were actually real cases. One oh, was wow. W. Floyd Collins, who was mm. trapped inside uh, Sand Cave, Kentucky, following a landslide. Oh, wow. Um, and there cool. was a Louisville newspaper and a reporter who actually did get well-known off covering that story, and he did win the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, interesting. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I didn't want the landslide to happen, but yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> little tidbit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like that, that's like he, he's straight up name-dropping real people who got famous off of like accidental events like this. Right. And then – And this he, is as he's going towards the victim too. Like, yes. like I'm so going to help him about but it all he's thinking about is he's the got there. Like it might just be a dead guy crushed under a rock. Like at this – like he <laughs> yeah. doesn't know that yet, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, and he even says that he's excited about the fact that it's one person because no one cares about a coal mine with 84 men or a million men like the Chinese famine. It's like people care about one, one. man. Yeah. yeah. They want – they want to know more about him. The family. Yeah, yeah. Is it Mao who has that Mao or Stalin who has that quote about one person dying is a tragedy, a million people dying is a statistic? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right for those two. Yeah. yeah so, at least Mao. I can't. Don't quote me. So, so, so no, Kirk, Kirk Douglas will say goes to the same school of thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he applies it to story, and he even says, yeah, the one guy crawled in for a story, a story and crawled out with a Pulitzer. Right. Um, but he goes in there, and he finds out that that guy is – he is stuck, but it's actually – he's probably not going to be in there for too long because it does seem like it's a bit of an easy fix that they just kind of go in through the side or something like that. And it's yeah. – uh, unfortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, he – That's not good optics. Not for his story. No, we will say that he finds a way to kind of convince everybody – to go in a different way. <laughs> uh, and this and, and it gets so just corrupt and gross, especially because he's he's telling the sheriff what's going on yes. and he's in on Ooh. it as well. So as you're as we have the scene, for instance, with the with the miner who has experience yeah. and letting them know we could do this in twelve hours. Yeah. Like this this is no big deal. I know how to do this, all that. Even the sheriff is like, no, you should listen to the journalist. Yeah. You know, the guy that just showed up and has no experience whatsoever with caves. <laughs> yeah, the sheriff who's, of course, running for re-election and, like, yeah. emblazons his name on the side of the mountain. Yeah, and has that great thing where he's just like, no, I'm not doing this for any prestige. I'm just doing this for the people, for the man in there. You know, that whole thing. Like, it's just, oh, my God. <laughs> also, one thing worth noting, one of the sheriff's deputies, by the way, Gene Evans who played oh. Bowden in Shock Corridor. The, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. So a good little connection there as well. But, yeah, he, he starts to uh, manipulate the rescue effort entirely. And, and it's yeah. genius because he comes in from the point of view as an organizer. He comes in as someone who's trying to solve this problem, but also the person who wants the problem to persist so that there's a story for him to write about. Yeah. It's so he looks good like either way at first. Of interest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they what we would call that. Um, 
And yeah, so he starts to like, you know, he starts to get in with the sheriff. He starts to get in with the actual the, the, the drillers who choose this very long winded technique that's going to take them days yeah. to drill through and get in there. Yeah. Um, and, and the whole time that they're doing the drill, all he can hear is the drill. Oh, so okay. he's just in a cave. He's going insane. Just for 24 hours a day, seven days, he's just hearing a giant drill ring through his head. So it's 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 interesting because it's not only just like the physical torment that that Kirk is putting this guy through, but his own decisions are also destroying his mentality. Like yeah. it's just mm-hmm. it, it's a and he doesn't even really know, which is it's like Kirk is almost doing this with a bit of ignorance too. Because like he's so, it seems like he's so focused on his story that he doesn't even think there's a chance that that guy could die, or he doesn't think about it. You know, like he doesn't think it could happen. Right. In, in he, a way. He, he, yeah. He, he, he doesn't take the severity the seriously, right? Yeah. The doctor he meets with, and basically he puts all his hope in the fact that the doctor says, "Oh yeah, that guy's as strong as they come. He'll be fine." And it's like, "Oh, you hear that? Doctor said he'll be fine." Get with <laughs> yeah. <the drill." laughs> yeah. Don't don't worry, Leo. I'm your pal. That's what he says, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> just yeah. fucking oh. lies. <laughs> yep. Um, and I love that the one, the kid, the photographer even says, uh, you're wishing for this to happen. He's like, I'm not wishing. I don't make things happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just no. write about them, man. That's right. Um, but, but at a certain point, this turns into a bit of a media circus because he has elongated this guy's entrapment so that he can have a great story to write about. I mean, immediately he's already calling the Albuquerque newspaper. He's like, I've got a gold mine of a story for you. Yeah, and he's convincing the, well, not the whole family, but at least the blonde, the wife of, of Leo, yeah. to kind of use wife. it as an economic thing. Because it's like, there's going to be people here. Your, 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 your business and, is failing. Yeah, it'll Imagine blow up. Imagine all these people coming in, all the, you know, because at one point she's and like, I'm going to skip town. Yeah, and I think that was he, her first thought. he convinces her, or she says it herself, that... It, they almost trick themselves into thinking that they're doing this for Leo. Yeah. <laughs> like, like after Leo gets out, they'll have, you'll have funding and you'll have money and all that. But it's like, well, we all know what happens. So, well, yeah. And, and she, she like before that was just going to straight up leave him. She was like, I'm yep. going to catch the next bus out of town. Oh, this yeah. is my escape she, from Leo. Right. She hates Leo. Yeah. So <laughs> much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, and then he calls her stupid and he says, well, you aren't, you don't see what's happening here. We have found a gold mine and you can get in on it. So he starts convincing her to be enrolled so that he can then be a family friend yep. so that he is then involved in Leo's decision-making so that mm-hmm. he, so cause he just tells her as the wife, you know, what he wants her to do next. He's like, you have to be the good wife. You have to go to church. You have to tell them that you don't want them to do it this way. You have to tell them that you want it to do it this supposedly safer way or whatever, you know, things right. like that. And then at a certain point, people do start showing up. They start charging people to enter the burial site. Um, yeah, it's like nobody gets in and for press free. Are there. So now they're turning a complete tragedy into just this economic boom house where it's just like like they're making money every single day just so that they can. And, and the thing is, too, it's like they're almost just waiting for a result. All, you're, yeah. all they're really looking at is a mountain with a yeah. guy they know is in it. Well, and, and, and one thing I love <laughs> is that all the journalists show up, and obviously they are outsiders. They're just there reporting. Right. So he's a journalist with the inside information. And at yeah. certain points, even the radio guys are interviewing him being like, thanks for all your amazing work getting inside there and whatnot. And then the I love the first people that he interviews. He points the mic at them, and they were going, you know – 
my wife wouldn't lie about this. And she said, we were the first people here. Oh, and, yeah. And, and then it immediately goes up. She t- sends the mic back to the husband after they say that. And they're like, well, yeah, why would she lie about something like that? He says, I'm an insurance salesman, <laughs> just like goddamn double indemnity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, which we do see. It is the same couple that was the first couple. Like, they were the uh, the harbinger for the media circus. They show up and right. they go, oh, is that the mountain there? Uh, <laughs> oh, is he, is he still in there? <laughs> <laughs> Honey, wake up the kids. It'll be instructive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, yeah. and then, be, and be, then be, to, because he turns it into a sales ad for his insurance. Because he's he like, even, "Have you ever gone to an accident before?" <laughs> I, I think he even like judges Leo, where he's like, "This man should have been insured for this." <laughs> like and all that, you're like, "Dude, he's trapped in a mountain. He's not concerned right now with his insurance payout." <laughs> Yeah, so he has a very dim view of people in general. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, I would say Wilder gets this, uh, like, word tossed around a lot in his movies, but this has to be the most deeply cynical Wilder film that there is. Well, yeah, because it's like you're watching every scene with Leo is just so it, it, it's it's heart wrenching because he is convinced that everyone is out there that is out is out to help him. And no one is. Yeah. There's like not one person. Basically, no. the only people really out to help him are the ones being instructed to do it improperly, yeah. which is the ones mm-hmm. drilling. Yeah. And so, it's just like. So, so we have the point of view of this survival situation from the from like the schemers. Yes, exactly. Um, from the con men. But then we still <laughs> have those scenes with Leo that are like, uh, you know, they're out there for you, Leo. There's thousands of people out there for you. And he gets this sense of like, yeah. you know, not not a hero, but that he's important, that yeah. he's, you know, being cared for. Well, and, and every time like Kirk Douglas okay. puts that performance on too, right? Right. Oh, I know. It's very, uh, reminded me a little bit of what Jake Gyllenhaal was doing in Nightcrawler. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely. If we're talking about people that care about Leo, we do have to mention, because they're just so sad, is these, these uh, the, they seem to be Leo's parents as yeah. maybe... Mexican mother and his uh, old father that are just like we just want Leo back and they're like yeah yeah we're doing this for Leo we'll get him out we'll get him out I mean, it's like, uh, <laughs> meanwhile we just- we're selling all this food and all this stuff and they're and, and they almost there's I a think- fucking Ferris wheel yeah <laughs> <laughs> We know that's unnecessary. <laughs> they set up a fucking amusement park yeah. around him trapped while they're drilling. Everyone's just eating hot dogs. At one point, a train pulls in and kids are getting off and there's a Leo song, an original song. Oh, yeah, by a country for- band. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. I wish I could remember the tune right now, but I can't. Yeah, it's a good tune, Leo, Leo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good tune. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Yeah, man. They, Another they, thing they set up straight up a carnival. It's crazy. Yeah. Another thing with uh, when we're talking about the the interviews uh, with the news, yeah, they eventually get to somebody who's like this old man who used to be a miner, yeah. and he was he even says, "Why are you guys drilling? You could <laughs> easily just you know pack up the walls and then get him out of here. I could do it in in eight hours or whatever." Yeah. And then Kurt, he 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 sees that and he goes, "Shit, I'm about to get had here. So I need to flip this on the guy." And he goes, "Oh, well, did the guy that you did that to survive?" And then the man's like, well, no, he didn't survive, but we like we were we very close. Yet, and it was, yeah. yeah. And he was like, well, there you go. I mean, he didn't survive. Are you going to listen to him or me? And it's just <laughs> such a, like, oh, my God, it, it's infuriating. But at the same time, I mean, it was, it, it's not, I don't know. It, I don't want to say impressive, but the way that this guy just charms his way through everything with, like, just with. Uh, yeah, he always has like a spin, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He just knows how to spin it. And it's infuriating to watch, but it's also captivating. 
you know, so. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, especially when he starts, like, nailing all of the other journalists who are there trying to, yeah. like, encroach on it. And they're all, yeah. like, the big city journalists that he used to work with. And he's just like, I'm a friend of the family. So you think you're going to break this before I do yeah. kind of deal? Friend of the family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and in with the sheriff. Yeah, and, and everyone, yeah, because the sheriff is colluding with him for his re-election campaign so that he has a big story where he's <laughs> the hero A big re-election well. sign on the mountain that the guy's trapped in. <laughs> well, well cause, Good and, lord. Because that's one of the craziest developments is when they eventually find out that, like, they aren't going to get there in time. The drill's not working fast enough. Yep. And that he's like, okay, well, no, you have to get in there and you have to do it the normal way now. And the sheriff's first reaction is... Well, okay, but how do I explain that we didn't do that first? Yep. And he's saying, I would rather keep doing it this way and Leo die than me have to explain to the public why I didn't just do it this way. Yeah, the and first he time. even says something like, uh, like he'll die with honor or yeah. something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something similar to that. And it's just so dark and evil, like downright fucking evil. Yeah. <laughs> no, like that. Because like, at this point, th- like until this point, you at least have this thought where it's like, he is they're, doing they're just delaying something right. that's going to happen con- anyway. He's making, he's contriving this, but it's at least something that they can fix. And then the moment they find out they can't do it, they don't, you know, I don't know, apologize or feel remorse. They start thinking of another scheme to keep going. Well, and, and a nice touch that Wilder throws in there, too, in his writing is that the sheriff says, like, reveals that that would be his thought process on that. And then yeah. it doesn't matter because they're told that they can't even do it the way that Douglas, they were told to do it in the first w- time mm-hmm. because right. they say that the drilling that they've been doing has weakened right. the wall so they can't even do that anymore right i forgot about so that, the sheriff actually. doesn't even have to admit that he just does he just straight up says yeah i would rather die or yeah, i would rather, rather him die, die than do that and i i wanted to give a shout out too as we we are pivoting here to like the big climactic developments but the set for the oh. mountain yeah. is insane and it is a set so i looked good. it up they said it, it was one of the biggest if not the oh, biggest that's a set um, non combat set that was built <laughs> at that time. Just people hanging out in cars, basically. Well, yeah, because they said the only other comparable size sets were literally for war films where right. they shot war sequences. Holy That's how shit. big the set was. I can't believe it's a wow. set. That's unbelievable. Well, I, I, I knew it. I had no I, idea either. Well, yeah, I, I wow. knew it had to be when that middle, that sequence happens in the middle where it's, it follows this couple that's riding the Ferris wheel. Mm-hmm. And then it it's slow. The camera moves slowly around to reveal that the couple is looking at the drillers on the mountain. Okay. And then it goes over. So you get the, the shot from the Ferris wheel looking all the way to the mountain. And then you get this big wide shot of Douglas coming up the mountain and delivering water because he's obviously the hero of the situation. He's yeah. delivering water to all of the drillers, keeping them all mm-hmm. hydrated. And as it follows him along that rock in the background, you can see the train come by. And then it cuts over to the shot of the train from behind the train where you see the train stop. It says like the Leah Minosa special train and all the people getting off (laughs) and the song playing as they run towards the thing. And so he, in a matter of 30 seconds, does like three different wide shots from three different parts of this set where you can see it all in the background. So you know that he had to have shot it in some capacity because like you see that train coming in from like miles and miles away in the background of the frame. So like that whole thing is a set. Like it's insane. That's unbelievable. (laughs) I had no idea. It looks so authentic. It's, it's unreal. 
That's crazy. Yeah. So good, good, good on them because it it's very, very convincing. And the fact that I just knew you couldn't get those shots, like, like there. And even like the shot, uh, and we'll get to like it, it feels why, huge. But like when people empty out and they have that one shot of the father overlooking the giant empty field, and then the re-election sign in the background. Oh, like spray painted or, or, yeah, or and painted it looks on like the a rock. Huge landscape. Yeah. So it's yeah. just it's very impressive to me that that is a that's, that's a great a shot set. too of him looking at the cave with the writing on right. the rock and yeah, everything it's like great, that. Because it's like after the tragedy, essentially, which we're which about we to should get to. Get to yeah, yes. we'll get to the, yeah. the whole point of this is that they they the decisions set in motion by Kirk Douglas's Chuck Tatum do actually result in the death of Leo. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and they, he is very shaken to this. this. This was one thing that I was a little, uh, I, I had a little, uh, the immediate moral conscience he seems to grows from it was a little bit much for me. Okay. Just because like, I do think that I didn't he, mind it just cause it's a death. You well, because I, mean? I don't, yeah. because he didn't know he was going to kill him. It's true. Yeah. But I also think that it wouldn't be that far of a stretch, mm. uh, for his character only because like he seems more sociopathic than like even well, the characters in like double indemnity who were pretty quick to murder people. So, yeah. <laughs> so for him to just be so shocked at this possibility that he's created and to be so morally outraged at everybody around I him. I was actually just going to say, I was, I even said I in my like, notes, I'm like, how do you think you have any leg to stand on to judge anybody right now? Well, like when he Holy starts, shit. Like when he starts I, assaulting I like the, the wife. Way he, he, I, I I like the way that he sort of projects this inner turmoil onto everybody else. It's clearly <laughs> just coming from like this place of self-loathing, and mm. you know it's, it's okay, hard. I, I feel that, and I it's it's kind of hard to tell at what point it stops being panic because the story is going bad and he doesn't have the leverage and he doesn't have the power, and what point it sort of morphs into this sort of moral panic of oh I killed the man. It's kind of a hard. Hard to say where that sort of shift is, and I, I might agree with you slightly that it's. I'm not sure it fully uh, sells that transition, but it. I think it works in the moment, at least. Yeah, because yeah. well, I mean, like, like plot wise, like the the gears shift in a way that still makes sense. Like his decision making still makes sense. It mm-hmm. was just kind of like the character's remorse was a little bit like. Uh, I didn't necessarily buy that he had that much remorse for what he okay. had done, but mm-hmm. for me, it, 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 it does like, it does make sense as a when you talk about it as a bit of self loathing where he's just more upset with himself and he's using it against other people because when he started yelling at the wife and I was like, dude, she was gonna leave town. Yeah, you were the one who uh, conscripted her into this scheme, and he seems to just be upset that like nobody else is upset as him about yeah. it. Yeah, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know why he's not acting like the other people are acting because every decision he made up until that point was sort of similar to the ones that they made yeah. he just he plays up not being as morally compromised but if we add that idea that maybe he is kind of playing it up a little bit yeah. then uh, i also think there's sort of a bit like this guy obviously has a, a giant ego and i do think mm-hmm. that there is a bit of him that was thoroughly convinced that he, he could, was in that he could do it so that when he realizes at the moment he's not and he's going to die that I could see that kind of morality come out of him a a little bit more just because I think he was honestly so convinced he was going to get away with it that there was no chance that he could kill this guy and so when he does it it just there's a reality there that he's like I would say it's definitely a loss of control because all those sequences where he is like 
the leader. He is the one spinning people, playing them. Absolutely. But all of a sudden, he finds mm-hmm. he finds a situation now that he can't spin. Yeah, he's like, it's, oh shit, this is it. It's I've just killed him, and he's going to die in twelve hours. Yeah, and he he even spends those twelve hours going and getting a priest to give Leo his last rites. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I think it goes back to that sort of metaphor that they use of the suspenders and the belt because uh, for a lot of the film, he after he gets the job at the Albuquerque paper, he is wearing the suspenders and the belt as if to say, you know, I'm clean right now. And then at a certain point when the plot sort of really kicks in, he throws away the suspenders and then it's sort of signifying this, you know, total lack of oversight, total lack of any sort of like self-control and literally like flying by the seat of his pants with this total confidence that it'll work out at the end. And then of course it spirals and it's like, well, probably should have kept those suspenders. (laughs) (laughs) Metaphorically speaking. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, he he finds himself like mortally wounded, stabbed in the gut because he was confronting the wife Lorraine. Oh yeah. Um, um, even though it was funny because like I was like, and he's, he's like he, mad at her, choking her that she's not accepting of Leo's gift. When I'm like, dude, you're killing the man right now. Well, yeah, yeah because she views Leo's <laughs> death as like, hey, yeah, you can get your story, and then we both go to New York, like we start a life together, and then he is very upset about that idea that she's not more. Uh, you know, morally upset about what they've done to Leo, even though it would, it, it's like he's the one who did set her in yeah. motion. Like he was one, she was one of the people that he spun to get her yeah, this, this way. This guy's just batshit insane. <laughs> yeah, so he's going a little, a little nuts. And I do really like the the ending of this where he gets his way. I mean, he he loses his job at the because while the media circus was happening, he left the New Mexico paper to get his job at right, the New York paper. Right, because he's getting paid a thousand bucks a day from the New York paper. So yes. he feels and that because he you know, had his ego and he's like oh i'm that i'm the big reporter now i'm getting a thousand dollars a day yeah but and, and he, but he was so upset about uh leo that he and he, even though he had the inside scoop that he was gonna die he just announces to everyone the death instead of yeah. saying i have the exclusive and giving it to his paper so he announces it to everyone and every other paper gets it before his paper so he just yep. gets fired and then all of those guys taking their victory smug victory lap around him being like oh man how come you didn't get the uh the final scoop or <laughs> and whatever. while he's just chugging whiskey again you're like oh he's back on the way yeah, and, he's, and, <laughs> oh. he, and, he, and he's calling the new york guy drunk off his ass and the guy's yeah. like and he sounds tells like him, you've been drinking again and that's the great part too where he tells him the truth and then he just kind of laughs at him and hangs up. And then he turns to his assistant and he goes, do you believe me? And he goes, yeah, I do. Yeah, like as if that, like, that's unfortunate I, that I believe yeah, you. I yeah. believe you that you I did feel- all of this and you made this happen. I 100% do. It's just I like feel it's worth mentioning also when those reporters come in and they they talking about how just awful the sheriff is, that the sheriff is also planning on digging into the mountain anyway just to pull out Leo's body so they can have a big send-off for him, I believe. <laughs> that's what I to put it. <laughs> Fuck. Have that, have that band play the Leo song at the funeral, you know? Oh, the yeah. The whole works. Leo, you're dead now. <laughs> <laughs> the circus is over, yeah. I believe, is what they say. Oh, and yeah. and the, the, the last scene where he goes back to the... New Mexico newspaper though and he's just like you can have a thousand dollar a day uh, newsman for free free, and then he just dies Dies. and I love the shot just him fainting right in front of the camera yeah like that it's just so uh, it's it's like it's got a a grit to it it's so dirty and just like you see the blood and every like it's 
or at least the sweat. I guess he's not bleeding in his face. He's just bleeding in the in, in the, the gut, stomach because yeah. he was stabbed. But but his face does smash into the ground like right in front of the camera, and yeah. it's like a close up of his face as he's like yeah. Dead. And I guess why I said blood is just the black and white. And since it's so close, it gives this very dirty feel to it because yeah. you can oh, see yeah. the sweat and everything. So, yeah, it's great. It's uh, yeah. a great ending. No, 100%. And maybe pivoting a little bit towards the reductive rating round here. Um, this one gets the four for me. Um, it, it's very, very solid. Very, um, <laughs> I mean, Double Indemnity is one of my just like all time favorite oh, films. Yeah. We talked about me it on too. the show. We did an episode, I think, uh, last year on it. Um, so I would, it's always awesome to get like some very get into the mode of Billy Wilder's writing because it's mm-hmm. just, it's very fun to watch his characters interact with each other. And then especially because he always puts them into some sort of overarching, uh, sort of like machine that we kind of watch them, yeah. uh, engage with. And a lot of the time it's the characters who set those machines in motion and they kind of react to them. They kind of get crushed by them inadvertently. Yeah. Um, and this is obviously a very obvious, uh, uh, media and industry screed and critique very ahead of Definitely. its time, probably. Cause yeah, I mean, I like, uh, I didn't think that there was a movie like this probably until like network network was the first movie I thought did something like this. And now here's one in 1951. 51, yeah. So yeah, crazy. maybe we'll find one even earlier. Who knows? Mm. But I mean, this is a very cynical film, obviously about, uh, the media and about, about, uh, the, the newspaper industry. Um, and you get it from the point of view of just like this, uh, almost total sociopath who has a little bit of a moral awakening in the, in, in the third act. And I know that Pauline, he's pretty much pa- forced to <laughs> Pauline Kale, when she was writing about this movie, she didn't like this movie. And, oh. uh, the way that she described it, which is honestly kind of was something that I kind of ended up liking about the movie was oh, that okay. she she described it as very nasty and callous like just through exactly. and through i would yeah. say exactly yeah <laughs> that's, i think that's what he's going for right so so i i think her argument was that she didn't really get much out of his character she was hmm. she was kind of just like he's just doing bad terrible things, things. terrible things <laughs> but there is something unique in kirk douglas's performance of that because again yeah. the way that he just like commands and and is convincing almost like the way that he so very easily gets everyone to be like yeah that's like kind of rational and logical what you're saying to me like if this has already happened we can just you know we can milk a little bit of money out of it we we have to make again it's that american ambition that exceptionalism that like anything to get ahead to get on top right um and you know he doesn't really see very much that's wrong with what he's doing until the big sort of like uh, so it's far too late <laughs> until it's too late for sure. So yeah, I do think that there's something like, you know, really interesting and compelling to watch moment to moment, but sort of similar, a little bit to shot quarter as well. I do think that even in comparison to other wilder stuff, I, it was a little bit less interested in some of the character stuff, I, but the character stuff it was interested in was really icky, I would yeah, say, which which was a neat intriguing. experience. Because, again, the main emotion you probably feel in this movie is for fucking Leo. Who oh, is, yeah. Who is, oh, absolutely. Who is just and, – and Leo, <laughs> you don't actually spend a whole lot of time with him. He is the object of attention and the object of abuse, really. Yeah. So you're just watching in slow motion <laughs> him be killed by everyone around him so that they can make money. Yeah, and, and while <laughs> really does milk his scenes for like just kind of this uh really like cynical irony almost yeah yeah because like i said earlier it's it's everyone he thinks everyone out there is out to help him and it seems like nobody well because we're the audience just as involved in the scheme as like the characters are leo's the only one not involved yeah (laughs) it's honestly how much of a sap leo is he just thinks the best of everybody including is just 
his really, really mean wife, yeah. uh, who he loves so much and just hates his guts. Uh, and it was like I felt like every scene with him I wanted to reach into the screen and go they're fucking you over man (laughs) it's not gonna happen (laughs) I I wanted to tell him the truth (laughs) and uh, yeah it was it was great I'm I'm gonna give it a four out of five too Uh, I honestly could see this becoming the five Um, it just I thought it was I I went like what you said I didn't know that there was this kind of uh, this critique on media it, it, from 1951. This yeah. was very cool uh, to, to see uh, in this decade. Um, and yeah, Kirk Douglas was fantastic. He had to play a very complicated character. You do hate him, but you do love to watch him. Um, and yeah, I, I, I thought this was great. Uh, it's not quite double indemnity for me, Billy Wilder, not yet, but uh, I do think that this well, is a Well, there's just such the an five. emotional perversity to the romantic aspect of that film. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I, th- I guess that's what it, it is. It does add a little bit of another layer because, again, that that's another cynical film show. about the insurance industry and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So this one, yeah. uh, this one is just, I think, more interested in its construction of yes. its story, right? It's sure. more like the, the ways that... Douglas manipulates each level so that it benefits yeah. him until the point that he has committed a murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. For now, I'm, I'll give it the four. Sweet. Uh, this one for me. This honestly, this I, I, I've seen quite a few Wilders at this point, but this is honestly my personal favorite. Ah. Uh, even over something like Double Indemnity, just for me. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, th- this would probably be another five for me and make me nice. a little boring, I think. But uh, it's. Uh, as you guys have pointed out, this is such a dark, cynical, almost punishingly mean movie for a 1950s studio picture. Yeah. It's also worth it's noting also, it was a bomb, total bomb, yeah, was, critically and financially. Yeah, critically too. <laughs> yep, <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> <These> yeah. <fucking, laughs> every week, dude, I'm sorry to interrupt you for a second, but it's like every week. I swear to God, we see something that I just absolutely love, and you tell me that people didn't like it back in the day. Yeah, we, we were just telling Jamie that Keeping <laughs> Tom was, like, a totally reviled. Like, y'all didn't know what you had. What are you doing? Yeah, we have Transformers now. Tom ruined Michael Powell's career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. It's just, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I was just, it's, it seems to be a pattern I'm seeing more, re- more and more. Yeah, it, it was just <laughs> worth noting because that was unique for Billy Wilder. Up until then, he was, like, an actual, like, like darling like it was I like i can't hey, believe this is the film that he, people, he, i think he won multiple oscars before making this one and he did sunset boulevard probably his most acclaimed I film swore, the year I before i thought this Ace was going to be like a nominated movie i had no idea that this wasn't wow no not very many oh, people no. saw it and the people who saw it did not care for it damn <laughs> wow I, I think i think that speaks to this not just the cynicism but what pa, what you mentioned that pauline kale says which is this nastiness mm-hmm. yeah it is like certainly Kirk Douglas kind of gets what he deserves in the end, but it's not a sort of like moral victory where you go come away feeling a little better. Like like at the end of Sunset, not Sunset Boulevard, uh, Double Indemnity, where there is almost this sort of a change, a change from that book, which has a darker ending, where it has mm. to have this sort of moral. Uh, triumph at the end where yeah, the, justice prevails. The, the production code where they were yeah. like, yeah, no, the criminals exactly. have to not succeed because we don't want to endorse yeah. criminality or something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Where, whereas the end of this, it's like, okay, Kirk 
dies, uh, but, you know, Leo's dead. The sheriff is <laughs> yeah. probably going to get reelected. The wife is just going to go to Los Angeles with all her money, and Leo's poor parents are just devastated. There is yeah. no justice in well, this. Yeah, and, and, and he got fired again, and all of the major newspapers made a shit ton of money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody won. <laughs> Except maybe <Yeah>. the sheriff. <laughs> yeah, hopefully he got reelected. Yeah, hopefully where's somebody the, where's won. The sequel? Where's the <laughs> yeah. sequel? Well, you know, once he once he puts on the send off, it's really just going to seal up his chances. You know, once he parades around the corpse, it'll be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah! Oh, All man. right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for Ace in the Hole and for this week's episode. That was shock corridor from 1963 and ace in the hole from 1951 thanks so much lance for bringing these films with you yeah they were awesome uh, of, of course it was it was a massive pleasure it's an honor to be on the show thank you so much for having me i had a great time no problem uh now lance this is the part of the show where if you've got anything to plug you can do it right here uh, I don't really have much to plug. I'm an, you I'm can an plug the Twitter. Sort of, yeah, I'm a I'm a budding academic right now, so keep an eye on the next decade if I have a book out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That's uh, just my name as my handle, Lance Saint Laurent uh, at it's at Lance Saint Laurent on Twitter. Uh, please follow me. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, uh, was, that's it. Cool. Hell yeah! All right. Well, Thanks for again, our man. listeners. You guys will be able to hear us on your Patreon bonus episode for the week next week. And we have a Fritz Lang double feature continuing yeah. a little bit of the noir vember here. We are going to be talking M from 1931, the German uh, serial killer film, which is not really a noir, but it is so early. It is actually kind of like pre-Duet's noir. Yeah. And it, 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 it is considered as one of the films that established the style of noir. It's part of the German expressionist movement, um, which uh, very much its use of uh, uh, shadows and mise-en-scene and lighting very much inspired both horror and noir. Yeah. And then we're also going to be pairing it with his night. 1953 film The Big Heat which is very much a noir. Great up noir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Both great too. That's going to be a great episode. Yeah, yeah. so uh, for our Patreon listeners it's patreon.com slash podcast if you want next week's episode and it just totally happened that Shock Corridor was supposed to be a Fritz Lang film which kind yeah, of blew that, my mind when crazy. I read that. So very excited to dig into uh, Fritz Lang. Um, especially because I don't think Jamie has ever done any German expressionism at all. So oh, no, we haven't, was, we haven't oh, had an excuse two. to do it on the show. So, oh, J- Jamie, you're going to love M, I think. Oh, it's I did. So <laughs> oh, oh I did. spoiler well, alert. Yeah, yeah spoiler Jamie, alert. Jamie yeah. watched it already. Next week, spoiler alert. I fucking loved it. <laughs> um, and then we are going to be back in two weeks' time with a guest, and that guest is taking us back into the realm of slashers. Oh, nice. But we are going with female-oriented slashers and female-written and directed slashers. Okay. I think I know where we're heading. Slumber Party Massacre 1 yeah, and 2. Yeah, boy. <laughs> oh, 1 and 2? 1 and 2. Fuck yeah. I've, That's I've, awesome. I've only seen 1. 1 is... I didn't know there was a sequel. ...an amazing parody script that was directed very seriously okay and it has a really unique vibe to it that comes from that where it has this awesome comedy to it and then two i haven't seen but okay, the poster features a guy with an electric guitar that has a drill at the end i'm already on board <laughs> i'm already <laughs> fiving it i'm preemptively fiving the movie that sounds like a good time Yeah, so that's what we are going to be talking about in two weeks time and because i'm feeling generous i'm gonna let you guys know what we're doing in three weeks time Ooh. 
Um, nice. Because I'm excited. Uh, Jamie and I are going to go check out The Irishman soon here. We're playing it at my theater. We're playing it theatrically. So Jamie and I are going to go sit for three and a half hours. Yes, we are. And then also at our theater, we are playing a 35 millimeter print of Goodfellas. So oh, to baby. celebrate, obviously, the bonus episode for the week after that has to be Goodfellas and Casino. What a heavy hitter. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. So little little treat. We're announcing a little bit ahead of time. Uh, but that's what you guys can expect from the next three weeks from us here. So it's going to uh, be good. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, guys.